and welcome to this episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. This is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station, and I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Here we are, first show of November. I cannot believe that October is, you know, over with. I mean, it came and went. I, I don't even know what happened. Uh, kind of like the Mets World Series hopes, right? They just came and went. For those of you who are baseball fans and watched the series, uh, you know, if, I actually am happy that Kansas City won because they think they really deserved it. Mets had so many ridiculous, silly errors that at that level you just shouldn't have. So uh, I, I congratulate the Kansas City Royals for winning the World Series. Uh, I hope that everybody had a great Halloween and uh, had fun. We, my family and I, we went to uh, some some trunk or treating events and had a lot of fun and then went to a hockey game, the Devils versus the Islanders on Halloween itself. It was really, really well done. Uh, I like to mention things like this just because, you know, you don't really think of, of something like the Prudential Center or another arena doing something really great and fun for kids on Halloween, but they did a great job. They had trick-or-treating inside the arena. They had people dressed up like zombies, and uh, then it it happened to be a great game, especially if you're a Devils fan because it went into overtime, and the Devils won in a shootout, so it was pretty good. And then, of course, some trick-or-treating. So, you know, now we are transitioning into Thanksgiving and then Christmas and Hanukkah and all of the holidays coming up. And before you know it, it's going to be the end of the year. So uh, we'll you know, get ready for our, our yearly legal and business news wrap-up. That's going to happen in December. But before we get there, we still have a lot of news to get through. So um, today we've got a lot of stories. A lot of them are, are kind of based on copyright. There's a lot of stuff that happened last week, copyright-based. So we're going to talk about that and uh, a new survey that was done concerning kids and their use of technology. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I just want to mention to you a brand new site uh, that I fell in love with over the weekend called Yes Finds. And it's a, a um, sort of a marketplace for everything, whether you're looking for a job or you're looking to sell something or a garage sale or whatever. So just take a listen to this. Hate wasting gas, get annoyed by emails, you need a new employee but don't know where to look, or do you need a new job? You're a simplistic person, so you broke up and you need to sell your stuff. Antiques to cars, places to go. Yes Finds is your new best friend. There's free listings, colorful, visual, easy to use, and mobile friendly. Something for everyone on YesFinds.com. Come join us. So check that out. It's YesFinds.com. All right, let's jump into the news today. Uh, One last thing before I forget, uh, because there was a lot of uh, discussion about this last week. We had a lot of calls come in. There is a free guide listed on utlradio.com. It is the top 10 legal writing tips for non-lawyers, and it's free. And I think from the feedback that I received last week, very helpful. So make sure you download it. There's no catch. It's just a free guide. And I take you through the top 10 things that you need to do when writing something that is legal-based. And what I mean by legal-based is that it doesn't have to necessarily be a lawsuit. It can be a letter that you're writing to your neighbor next door because they're playing music too loudly or late into the hours, you know, late hours of the night. Uh, It's just meant to help you understand how to get your point across 
And then, of course, there are applications that you can use it for court documents and writing to a judge or to a, uh, a lawyer adversary. So check that out. That, of course, is on utlradio.com. It's on the homepage, right-hand side. Just uh, click the link and you'll get your download. All right, so let's start with a copyright victory today for Point Break Stage Spoof. So you guys, I'm sure, remember that movie. I believe it was with Patrick Swayze, Point Break, maybe even Keanu Reeves, if I'm remembering correctly, where they're like bank robbers, but they're surfers. Um, Well, you know, there's a story that's come out of Courthouse News, uh, a spoof for the stage of the 1991 action thriller Point Break, still benefits from copyright protections, so the playwright is entitled to royalties the Second Circuit ruled today, affirming a $250,000 verdict. The ruling is an unusual flip for application of fair use, often employed to protect satirists who mock copyrighted material in that it protects the satirist from uncopyrighted use of her material. So Point Break Live, a stage parody of the Keanu Reeves' surfing action movie, yes, I did remember that correctly, supplants 20-foot waves for squirt guns and a kiddie pool in place of a real one. It also lifts entire sections of dialogue from the movie screenplay and makes a mockery of Reeves' reputation for wooden acting by calling on random audience members to play the actor's part. The play opened in Los Angeles, uh, but soon hit the road where it caught the attention of national press And in its 2013 review, the New York Times said it has a deliberately homemade look and praised the decision to have audience members act out Keanu Reeves' part, Johnny Utah. Uh, After it became a modest hit, the play also created a sequel behind uh, behind the scenes. Play author Jamie Keeling and producer Eve Harris entered into a legal battle over the play's copyright when Harris tried to continue performances after the initial two-month run without paying Keeling any more money. Keeling filed for copyright in 2010 and brought a federal complaint in Manhattan against Harz's production company, New Rock Theater Productions, arguing that his play was protected by the fair use doctrine. Harz's attorney countered that because the play was an unauthorized derivative work, it was not entitled to copyright protection and that Keeling was therefore underserving or undeserving of further payment. A jury ultimately sided with Keeling and awarded him $250,000 based on the fact that the play was a parody and that Keeling had sole ownership of the play's copyright. The Second Circuit affirmed. Typically, fair use is involved as a defense against the claim of copyright infringement brought by source material rights holders, Judge Jose Carbonaris wrote for a three-person panel. Here, however... Keeling invoked the fair use principle to establish an affirmative claim against defendants for unauthorized use of the Point Break Live parody. So let's take a step back and look at fair use. Now, you know that when material is produced by one person or or one party, that that material is copyright protected. And there's, of course, there's, there's different levels of copyright protection, Uh, If you register the copyright with the United States Copyright Office, then you can sue somebody not only for injunctive relief, meaning to make them stop doing something, but you can also sue them for monetary damages. If you don't register your trademark, then you can only ask the court for injunctive relief, but you're not able to sue for damages. So what we know about copyright protection 
is that there is an exception to copyright law, and it's called the fair use doctrine. And it has sort of a few applications where you can use it and not get in trouble, like education would be one. But parody is is another one. Parody is a main one. And that's why shows like Saturday Night Live can sort of spoof other things, other copyright-protected things, and not have a problem with it because of fair use, because you're making a parody, you're making humor out of it, and you're using the protected material for a different purpose. So parody is one of those exceptions to the copyright law. And here, uh, what happened was Point point, uh, Break, I want to say Point Blank, that's because my mind is blank, Point Break uh, was a movie, and obviously copyright protections were filed and put in place when that movie was created. Now, the creator of the play used or invoked the fair use doctrine to be able to create the play because it's clearly a parody. So you've got you know the squirt guns instead of the waves. You've got a pool instead of the ocean. That is permissible use. That falls under the fair use doctrine. You're allowed to do that. And so you know the play was created. Now you've got somebody who was involved with the play going out and trying to perform, continue to perform the play. So the creator of the play files the lawsuit and says, wait a minute, my play, my parody play is protected by copyright law. And the person that was trying to continue to perform the play was saying, no, 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 you don't get any copyright protection because I'm using it fair use. And it was derived from a parody to begin with. I mean, you took it from a real play, made a parody, and because that is a parody that we're trying to, that we're we're taking, there's no copyright protection, and that you know is just not how the Second Circuit ruled, um, you know. And the and the way that the judge wrote the decision, it's it's actually very good. And if you're interested in getting a copy of it, just contact us at info at utlradio.com, and we'll send you a copy of the judge's decision. Um, But the way that the decision is written, it addresses the question. The primary question presented is whether an unauthorized work that makes fair use of its source material may itself be protected by copyright. And the court continues and says, we hold for substantially the reasons stated by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York that if the creator of an unauthorized work stays within the bounds of fair use and adds sufficient originality. She may claim protection under the Copyright Act, that's 17 U.S.C., uh, Section 103, for her original contributions. We also reject defendants' challenge to the district court's jury charge. The district court, uh, therefore, affirms. So it's a very well-written decision. You know, sometimes decisions are kind of rushed through. This one happens to be a very good one. So... Uh, If you're interested in learning more about copyright protection and fair use, uh, at least in the eyes of the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, then contact me and uh, I will make sure you get a copy of that decision. Again, that is info at utlradio.com. Or you can go on to utlradio.com itself and there's telephone numbers and social media. Um, Just reach out to us. Any way that uh, works for you, and we'll get you a copy of the decision. Okay. Let's um, look now at Hasbro. Okay, Hasbro, the toy company. 
This is another sort of copyright claim. Um, it's really, this one blows my mind. This one's kind of silly, but they're filing. So Hasbro scoffs at Fox News anchor's image claim. In its motion to dismiss a Fox News anchor's lawsuit, Hasbro insists that its hamster toy looks nothing like the reporter who shares its name. Harris Faulkner went to court last month over a toy in the littlest pet shop product line that makes prominent and unauthorized use of her name, contending that elements of the hamster toy bear a physical resemblance to her. Harris enumerated, in particular, the tone of its complexion, the skin, the shape of its eyes, and the design of its eye makeup is what she's saying looks like her. I'm going to um, make sure that we put up a comparison on the video. So if you're interested in seeing that, you can check out YouTube uh, and look at our channel later. I cannot understand how this person thinks that this littlest pet shop hamster looks like her at all. It's absolutely insane. Um, Hasbro describes its littlest pet shop brand as a fictional world comprising hundreds of miniature cartoon-like animals made for children ages four and up. Faulkner, a six-time Emmy Award winner who anchors the network's Fox Weekend Report uh, or Fox Report Weekend show, says she never gave permission for Hasbro to use her name or likeness on the toy and that Hasbro has ignored her requests that it cease selling it. She's seeking $5 million in damages from the company. $5 million. Uh, in an October 26th motion to dismiss, Hasbro argues that while Miss Faulkner alleges that she and the hamster toy share the same name, the allegation is not enough. The mere use of a real person's name for a fictional character is not actionable as a right of publicity claim, absent additional evidence that the unique identity of that person has been misappropriated, the motion states. Hasbro also noted that while Ms. Faulkner contends that the hamster toy misappropriated her appearance as well, a comparison of the miniature hamster toy and the human Ms. Faulkner reveals that the allegations are, uh, is implausible on its face. No reasonable fact finder could conclude that the two bear any resemblance to one another, the toy maker added. The motion incorporates several visual aids, including a side-by-side -side comparison of the toy and the real-life Harris Faulkner. Ms. Faulkner is an adult, African-American, human female newscaster. The hamster toy is an inch-tall, cartoon-like plastic animal which has no apparent gender or profession or even clothing that might identify its gender or profession, the motion states. Hasbro concludes that no one could possibly identify the fictional hamster toy with Ms. Faulkner based on their appearance. Unbelievable. And wait till you see the image. I cannot understand how this is happening. <laughs> this woman is suing for $5 million for this hamster. Um, I mean, I guess it's flattering for the hamster to be compared. She's a pretty lady. So I guess the hamster is probably very excited um, that it, because there's no gender on this hamster, is is being considered uh, very popular and good looking. Who, who knows? Uh, Hasbro has declined to comment additionally on the motion, citing a company policy of not commenting on pending litigation. The company is represented uh, by a firm out of Manhattan, and Hasbro no longer makes or sells the toy version of Harris Faulkner, and the item is not listed on the toy's ma toy maker's website, but third-party uh, vendors such as Amazon 
do you have the product available for purchase? So, all right, what do we take away from this? The point here, I think, to understand is that if somebody uses your image or likeness without your permission, you may have a claim. Obviously, people who are in positions of, um, of, of the public eye, you know, actors, athletes, I think that they have stronger claims. Some might disagree with me, but I think they have stronger claims and maybe stronger um, damages claims because, you know, I think they have more to lose. So if you take perhaps a um, an athlete and you create a toy or something uh, that, that you're profiting off of and they're losing money, they're not getting any royalties from that um, because their name is attracting people to the product or their image or their likeness, the company is making money, the individual is not, they're profiting illegally off of that person's image or likeness. So I, I can see that happening. Uh, it is possible that you can also have a claim if you are not famous, but you you see where I'm going with that. Like if you're not famous, nobody's going to try to rip you off uh, or make a toy of you. But you know, it can happen and you do have rights as well. Here in this case, I don't understand what her issue is. I don't know if it was just to prove a point, to get some attention. Uh, yeah, it's got the same name, but it has nothing to do with um, with her. As a matter of fact, could you imagine saying that everybody or everything out there that has the name John Smith is somehow protected I mean, which John Smith would win? So point being that just because you use somebody's name doesn't mean that you're actually ripping them off or you're violating anything that uh, is protected and you're not benefiting from their image. Clearly, wait till you see the hamster. Nothing like her. Um, All right, I want to talk next for a second about an official who faces jail time for scalping NASCAR tickets. You know, we all know that scalping tickets is something you should not do, and I haven't seen it in a while, but this past Saturday, I was telling you earlier that I took my uh, kids and my wife to a Devils game, a hockey game, and surprisingly enough, there was a guy out there in broad daylight trying to scalp tickets, and I, I haven't seen it in so long because... It's, first of all, illegal. Second of all, you never know if you're actually going to get tickets that get you into the building. And third, with the advent of sites like StubHub, you can really get tickets to anything. Yeah, you might have to pay a premium for some of the seats, but you can get tickets to just about anything. And so I don't think that scalping is really, at least in my mind, a profitable business anymore. And I would never, ever scalp. As a matter of fact, it's kind of funny. Um, Before or during, actually, the Devil's Games, they've got this little promo video that runs, and it talks about scalping tickets. And they've got this guy in an airport trying to scalp airline tickets, and he can't believe that nobody wants to, you know, get these tickets. And then it says, you wouldn't scalp airline tickets, or you wouldn't buy airline tickets from a scalper. Why do it at a Devil's Game? I thought it was kind of clever. Um, but in this case, we've got uh, a, 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 an official from NASCAR. The former mayor of Bristol, Virginia, pleaded guilty to illegally selling NASCAR tickets and then lying to have a federal or lying to a federal grand jury about it. 
Paul Hurley, who also served on the board of directors of Bristol Utilities Authority and the Bristol Virginia Economic Development Committee, waived his right to be indicted this week before pleading guilty before U.S. District Judge James Jones. According to prosecutors, between 2009 and 2014, Hurley received Bristol Motor Speedway tickets to be used for economic development purposes and assumed the track that uh, assumed that the tickets would be given away free of charge to prospects considering moving their business to the community. However, during an investigation by the office of U.S. Attorney Anthony Girano, Hurley admitted he in, uh, instead sold the tickets to scalpers, friends, and others. This after he lied to a grand jury in July about the ticket sales. Prosecutors said the former mayor sold at least 50 NASCAR tickets with a total value of about $5,000. Hurley faces a maximum penalty of up to 20 years in prison for one charge of mail fraud and up to five years in prison for perjury. Under the terms of his plea agreement, he must also pay $5,000 in restitution and forfeit an additional $10,000. So here, clearly, you can see the negative or the downside to scalping tickets. I cannot believe that somebody, you know, in, in I, I would say held in high regard, the mayor of Bristol, Virginia, would be dumb enough to do something like this. Um, most often, scalpers are not famous people. There are people that blend into the crowd that you don't know who they are or what what you know where they come from. Uh, to be a noted official, a public official in the public eye, not just as the mayor, but serving on the uh, board of directors for the Utilities Authority and Economic Development Committee, how you could be dumb enough to do something like this, I don't know. Uh, but this highlights the importance of understanding that scalping tickets is not something that you should do regardless of of your place in life, whether you are high-ranking authority, whether you're mayor, or whether you're just an individual. It's not worth it, you know, completely not worth it, because now this guy is facing jail time over $5,000 worth of tickets. Now, $5,000 is a lot of money, but is it really worth going to jail for? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue no. All right, now uh, moving along, a shark photographer says he got jobbed. This from courthousenews.com. An acclaimed underwater photographer who snapped a Madden attack photo from a shark cage says Universal Pictures has no right to use it twice in the new film Steve Jobs. Carl Rosslier has specialized in sharks during his 40 years experience as a diver and photographer with extensive experience uh, photographing sharks particularly in the waters off southern Australia. He claims Universal Pictures did not get his permission to use his copyrighted maddened attack, that's in quotes, maddened attack photo, in two scenes to depict Jobs as intense, visceral, vicious, ruthless, and predatory. The maddened attack photograph of a great white shark is central to the Steve Jobs movie, which visually uses zoomorphism attributing the shark's characteristics to jobs to unsubtly unsubtly inform the movie audience and comment on jobs psyche rossler says in an october 29th lawsuit in federal court ironically jobs did not have or did have the right to use the photo 17 years ago the movie scenes are based on a may 6 1998 presentation during which Jobs used the Madden attack 
to introduce Apple's PowerBook G3 laptop computer, Rossler says. Apple had a one-year license to use Madden Attack in its promotions. The movie scene is a fictional illustration of Jobs' obsessive and perfectionist nature, Rossler says, making the unlicensed use of the image an important element of the film, as mentioned in several published reviews. Madden Attack appears again in the next scene, which depicts an argument between Jobs and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. The sharp image, uh, shark image appears on a large screen behind the two men before one of Jobs' presentation, Rossler says. In this case, Maddened Attack is not used in a documentary role, but to show Steve Jobs' predatory nature and his relationship with Wozniak, according to the complaint. Rossler recorded Maddened Attack from a shark cage in 1994 during a 10-day diving expedition near the Neptune Islands, about 50 miles southwest of Adelaide, Australia. The great white shark in the image is a young male, about 14 feet long, showing a wide-open mouth with a menacing array of teeth. Rossler calls it an iconic image capturing the aggressive, viscerous, uh, vicious, predatory nature of the shark, mouth open and teeth ready to crush, kill, and devour its victim. Rossler copyrighted the image in 1995 and renewed the copyright again in 2012. He seeks an accounting an injunction, and damages for copyright infringement, vicarious infringement, and contributory infringement. Named as defendants are Universal City Studios, a.k.a. Universal Pictures, Universal City Studios, uh, a.k.a. Universal Pictures, Legendary Pictures Films, Legendary Pictures Funding, Legendary Pictures Production, AMC Entertainment, Regal Entertainment Group, Cinemark Holdings, and Cinemark USA. So here's another situation where the unlicensed use of copyright can land you in some pretty hot water. And here we've got large name defendants. I mean, this is essentially universal who has used the picture. Now, they could certainly argue that they were under the misguided belief that somehow Apple owned or had licensed um, the, the image or the use of the image for an extended period of time maybe even indefinitely, who knows? That would, would be, I think, that, you know, the way that I would try to argue that. Um, but, you know, it's going to be tough because I would imagine being that this photographer uh, seems to have his stuff in order, and Apple clearly would have as well, that if there was a licensing agreement, it would have been clear, and it would have had a clear start and end date, and so the expiration of the licensing agreement should be documented enough that I don't see how Universal can make out a successful argument. So probably uh, at some point going to settle, but this demonstrates, again, the importance of, of understanding what you're using. You know, just to take it and bring it down to a more sort of digestible level, let's say that you're a small business and you're going to be putting up a website and you go on to Google Images and you download an image available on Google Images, but it's not something that you created, nor do you have any licensing rights to it. Well, that could be a problem for you because using that image could result in you being sued. Now, whether or not they can sue for damages hinges upon whether that picture, as I mentioned to you earlier, has been registered with the copyright office. If it's not, then they can get injunctive relief, meaning they can make you take the picture down. If it is or has been registered, then you could be on the hook for monetary damages. And, and trust me, nobody wants that because some of these damage claims 
can find their way very high up in, uh, in in the money stratosphere. You know, you could be, depending upon the image, you could be in the hole for quite a bit of money. So don't do it. And if you are looking to try to protect your image and you've got an iconic image like this gentleman's shark f- photograph, then maybe it's worth going and filing for copyright protection because if he hadn't, he would not be able to sue for monetary damages. No money. He'd only be sue, uh, be able to sue for injunctive relief. And I think that if you're, you know, you find your your photograph being used in a movie like Steve Jobs, well, millions of people are going to presumably see that movie and your image, and you're not getting a dime for it. That is a problem. So you have to be aware of, you know sort of the value of your picture, the uniqueness of your picture, and make sure that you protect it, um, you know, the best way that, that suits you. That, that being said, not every picture, okay, should be filed uh, with the copyright office. First of all, you'd go broke with all the filings, and there's no need for it. But in, in cases like this where it is an iconic picture, then definitely you'd want to do that. Okay, now let's talk about some Muslim truckers who refused to transport alcohol and they win a religious discrimination suit. This coming from finelaw.com. Refusing to provide reasonable accommodations to religious employees could cost bosses. Two Muslim truckers who refused to transport alcohol for religious reasons were vindicated by a jury last week. They uh, won their religious discrimination claim and $240,000 in damages, according to the Washington Post. The suit was brought in Illinois by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on behalf of the truckers. The EEOC argued that the company could easily have switched the driver's loads, as is the regular practice of Star Transport. The company conceded this point, which may be why the truckers' claim succeeded. So what this hinges on is the idea of reasonable accommodation. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, private employers are prohibited from discriminating against employees based upon their religion. In addition to the federal law, states have individual statutes that often provide added restrictions. Employers must make reasonable accommodations for religious employees. That does not mean that the worker can just do whatever he or she wants, But if accommodating religious concerns does not present an undue hardship to the employer or other workers, then you must provide some reasonable accommodation. And that's how that word reasonable comes into play. If it's unreasonable, for example, uh, to change the alcohol load would have resulted in uh, days of delay and thousands of dollars in money lost, then maybe it wouldn't be considered to be reasonable, okay, to accommodate. But in this case, it was just, hey, switch the load, no big deal, and then they don't have to take the alcohol. So that clearly is um, failure by that company to exercise its obligation of reasonable accommodation. Now, this is not just for religious discrimination, any type of discrimination, including somebody who may have a handicap. Um, Let's say that somebody is employed by a company uh, in sales and, you know, this person can very easily 
sit at a desk. Let's say they're in a wheelchair. They can't walk around easily. And, uh, and, and man the phones, man the computers. If all of a sudden you've decided that everyone's going to be a roving salesperson, but this person can do the job sitting down and you don't allow that, you don't provide that reasonable accommodation, then theoretically that person could sue for discrimination, for you failing to provide reasonable accommodations. That's the key word here, reasonable accommodations. All right, now uh, you know that with the time change this weekend, and I don't know about you, but I am not a big fan of the time change because, yes, you get that extra hour worth of sleep, but it totally throws me off, and I'm thrown off for a good two weeks, on top of which I can't stand going home in the pitch dark. I like it being lighter later. I mean, I think that most people are more productive. You know, 5 o'clock comes, it's pitch dark. Everybody wants to go home and go to bed. Well, there is a study now um, that is posted in the ABA Journal. Making daylight savings time permanent could reduce crime, researchers say. Robberies that take place during the evening commute could be reduced by making daylight savings time permanent, according to a new study. When daylight savings time begins in the spring, robbery rates drop an average of 7% for the entire day and an average of 27% during the evening hour, that gained extra sunlight, the study found. The Washington Post has uh, a story on the findings by researchers at the Brookings Institute of Cornell University, and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. But according to the researchers, most street crimes occur between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m., a time when many people are traveling home from work. With more light during those hours, potential victims can see potential threats and identify criminals who target them. Study authors Jennifer Doliak and Nicholas Sanders came to their conclusion after studying what happened when Congress increased daylight savings time by four weeks in 2007. This produced a useful natural experiment for our paper, which helped us isolate the effect of daylight from other seasonal factors that might affect crime. Doliak and Sanders write at uh, Brookings Now. Uh, the paper will ultimately be published in the Review of Economics and Statistics. So I think that, um, you know, if it has an impact on crime, that it would be a good idea to keep it lighter later. And I think that from a productivity standpoint, and I might add, while I'm, I'm certainly not a, uh, a psychiatrist, a seasonal depression standpoint, I think that if it's lighter later, there's more sunlight, uh, I, I think that people would be happier. That's just my point of view. I would rather see uh, light later in the day. And now, of course, according to this study, there's also an impact on crime. And I can understand that because between 5 and 8, in the pitch blackness of night, I think that people are more brazen and will do things. I mean, sure, attacks happen in the day too. Crimes happen during you know sunlight hours. But if you believe the study, statistically, you're going to have more activity between the hours of 5 and 8. And when it's darker, um, it, it just sort of opens the door up for more of that activity. But I'd love to know what you guys think. So drop me a note at info at utlradio.com or uh, on social media. All right, now a woman is convicted for bogus court papers served on a judge and a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer. This is also coming from 
theabajournal.com. A Texas woman has been fined $500 and sentenced to two years of probation for her role in serving bogus court orders on a judge and lawyer involved in a foreclosure case against her. The woman, Susan Kamak of Hunt, Texas, was convicted of three misdemeanor counts of stimulating, I'm sorry, simulating legal process, uh, a report that is located in the San Antonio Express News. Kamak is a member of the Republic of Texas, a group that believes Texas is a separate nation. The court papers ordered the lawyer and judge to appear at an international common law court that met at a Veterans of Foreign Wars post. On the witness stand, Kamek admitted she initiated complaints about the lawyer and judge but denied serving the court orders. So uh, two years of probation and $500 fine. I mean, you know, that's ridiculous to be, again, that dumb to do something like that. First of all, I don't, I have not really heard much. I, I know generally about this Republic of Texas, um, but I've not heard much about them. But here's a case where whether she's trying to make a point or not, I have no idea. But the point that's made is that she's going to be on probation for two years and has a criminal record now because of doing something so dumb as to, you know, forge a court order. It's just silly and nonsense. and I don't understand it, but she did it. All right, now uh, I want to talk for a second about an article that is in USA Today. It's uh, called Techie Tykes, Kids Going Mobile at a Much Earlier Age. At four, many multitask, a new survey shows. So search on YouTube for the word lullaby and you'll get about 236,000 results. A new study suggests why about one in four parents are using a mobile device to put their young children to sleep. The study in Monday's journal Pediatrics um, finds almost universal exposure and use of mobile devices among young children. If upheld by further research, the findings could upend our understanding not only of how very young children consume media, but whether the digital divide between low-income and middle-class families exist anymore. The findings are a bit higher than recent results from Common Sense Media, which found that in families with children ages 8 or younger, ownership of tablet devices such as iPads was 40% in 2013. It found that 75% of children had access to some type of smart device at home. The study in pediatrics involved a survey of 289 parents of 350 children in an urban, low-income minority community. It found that smartphone ownership is high, Roughly 77% of parents surveyed say they have a smartphone. What's more surprising is that nearly 97% of all parents said their children used mobile devices of some sort. At age four, the survey found three-fourths of the kids owned their own mobile device and about half multitasked using more than one device at a time. Among other findings, 20% of one-year-olds own a tablet computer 28% of two-year-olds can navigate a mobile device with no help. 28% of parents said they use a mobile device to put their children to sleep. One of the more amazing findings, said uh, Mathilde Egerman, chair of the Department of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, and one of the lead researchers on the study was how quickly children as young as three reach independent use of such devices. That we didn't expect, she said. So... You know, this is important for a few things. First of all, I think that it shows if you're a business 
I think it shows the importance of tablet apps, smartphones versus traditional laptops and desktops and that sort of thing. I think that the mobile revolution is in full swing. And if you look at this study, forgetting for a second what the study is showing about usage of kids and you know how parents use media, you know, mobile devices to help put kids to sleep. Think about it from a practical standpoint. If you're talking about two, three, four-year-olds being highly proficient with um, mobile devices, what is that going to mean for the future of business, for the future of e-commerce? Mobile selling, mobile sites, mobile um, exposure, I think, is going to be paramount to success as we continue to move forward. It already is something that I think everyone is aware of, which is why there are so many mobile-friendly sites out there of existing websites that might display differently on a large computer versus a mobile phone. I think people are aware of it, but you know, here this study is suggesting that we're talking about kids as young as two, actually as young as one, 20% of one-year-olds own a tablet computer. Now, moving forward into the future, these one-year-olds are going to be your company's customers at some point. And as we are exposing our young children to more and more uh, use of, of mobile devices, I think it's going to be a trend that continues. In fact, my son's applying to a high school and they only use tablets for all of their books. They don't carry around any books, which I think is great, uh, certainly for the, I guess, uh, you know, the kids. They don't have to carry all those books around. Uh, Also for the parents who don't have to buy multiple backpacks when their kids are excessively hard on them or decide to carry their locker home with them every single day. My son will tell you all about that. Um, But I think that really what's important to note from a business standpoint is look at the takeaway here. You can hit, I think, more, you can reach more potential customers when you engage in the mobile market. Getting people to see your product or services mobile, mobily, that's uh, that's really where it's at. And you can see here that you know you're getting, you know, little kids as as young as one potential customers. So I would consider that if you don't have a online mobile product, an app, or something like that, you should consider it seriously because it really truly is the way of the future. All right, so finally, we're going to look at ex-NWA manager who is suing over straight out of Compton. Former NWA manager Jerry Heller is seeking upwards of $110 million from the makers of the biopic Straight Out of Compton for falsely portraying him as the bad guy and a sleazy manager, according to a lawsuit filed in state court. Heller's complaint names numerous defendants, including NBC Universal director F. Gary F. Gary Gray. Well, that's a, almost a tongue twister. F. Gary Gray. And producers Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. Heller's complaint names um, a couple other people as well. Uh, he says here that they really made him a demon. They made him a devil, Heller's attorneys uh, told Courthouse News in a phone interview. that They made him a very unsavory, quote, and unquote, sleazy guy. Straight Outta Compton tells the story of their rise and fall of NWA, 
a rap group that emerged from the streets of Compton in the mid-1980s and became hugely successful and an influential uh, group in the, uh, the hip-hop culture. The group was assembled by Easy Easy Z. I thought it was Easy E, but this is Easy Z, who founded Ruthless Records with Heller, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, MC Ran, and DJ Yella, who were also members of the controversial group that used explicit lyrics and glorified drugs and crime, sparking the rise in popularity of gangster rap. Heller portrayed in the movie by Paul Giamatti says that the film is littered with false statements that harm the reputation of plaintiff and aim to ridicule and lower him in the opinion of the community and to deter third persons from associating or dealing with him. So it must show a lot of um, un- undesirable behavior, perhaps maybe some criminal stuff. And you know what they're saying essentially is that not only are you damaging his reputation, but if people out there see that this is, is how he's being portrayed, maybe they don't want to work with him anymore because now maybe he's being portrayed as a thug or a gangster. Uh, so I understand that for sure. The insidiousness of defendant's behavior is underscored by the fact that the film may well become the largest globally grossing music story-based film ever, the complaint says. The larger the success of the film, the greater the damage is to plaintiff, who has been and continues to be defamed, ridiculed, and robbed of his personal and financial rights. Heller asserts claims for defamation, misappropriation of likeness, tortious interference, breach of contract, conversion, and copyright infringement. He's seeking $35 million in compensatory damages and $75 million in punitive damages, plus box office profits from the movie as restitution. The film has grossed nearly $200 million worldwide. Additional defendants include the estate of Eazy-E, his window Tamika Woods-Wright, Compton Records, Matt Alvarez, Scott Bernstein, Legendary Pictures, Xenon Pictures, Jonathan Herman, Andrea Berloff, S. Lee Savage, and Alan Wenkis. NBC Universal declined to comment. So again, another copyright story, another um, you know infringement case where you're, you're using somebody's likeness. This is an interesting one because I definitely understand what they're saying with respect to the tortious interference. You know, you're going to paint somebody in a in a bad light, and then nobody's going to want to work with them because oh well, didn't you see that movie and he supposedly did A, B, and C to somebody. Why do we want to work with him? So it's an interesting point, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, that's going to do it for uh, for the news today. I want to thank everybody who has recently subscribed and welcome you to the utlradio.com family. I want to remind you as well that in addition to this podcast, we have a YouTube channel, and the YouTube channel generally has different content than what you'll get on the podcast. There's a lot of law basics and how-tos and explanations about handling cases pro se, meaning without an attorney, things that you might need to know, some tips and tricks, uh, court appearance issues and things of that nature. So check that out. If you haven't subscribed to either the podcast or to the YouTube channel, please make sure that you do subscribe to both because I don't want you to miss out on a portion of the information that we're providing. And then also, if you're looking for the one central location to go, then make sure you go to utlradio.com. It's the central hub for everything that we're doing. You can find podcasts. You can find the videos there. You can also find 
blogs and other information as well as free downloads and guides. So check that out at utlradio.com. Before we go, I want to again remind you about yesfinds.com. Hate wasting gas? Who doesn't? Annoyed by emails? Ah! You need that new employee, right? And you need a new job, maybe. Where do you look? What do you do? Antiques to cars. Places to go. Yes Finds is your new best friend. Free listings. Colorful. Visual. Yesfinds.com. It's easy to use. It's mobile friendly and something for everyone. www.yesfinds.com. Come join us. So check out yesfinds.com. All right, that's going to do it. Don't forget, tune in tomorrow. We've got our legal Q&A, followed by Wednesday's business Q&A, and then uh, Thursday, Understanding Business, our interview show, followed by Friday's weekly wrap-up, just in case you missed anything, and you shouldn't be missing anything. But I understand people get busy, so that's why we have the weekly wrap-up. Uh, please don't forget to let us know what you think about the show, about either the podcast or the video program. Um, I really, really value your opinions. It really helps us to create better content, things that you need. Maybe there's a legal issue that you'd like discussed or a business question that you might have. Um, you know, I don't know what you need until you tell me. So by giving me your feedback, sending emails, putting comments on the YouTube or blog, it really, really, truly means a lot to me. Um, and so I, I encourage you to continue to do that so that I can give you what you need. Also, I want to mention uh, about our app. You know, we're talking about mobile and you know how important it is with, with today's study out about the four-year-olds and, and below. Well, we do have an app as well. It's free. You can download it from the iTunes store or from the Android market. And links to the app are located on utlradio.com. There's also a special function of the app which allows you to ask your business or legal question and submit it to our office and we'll address it either on the show or directly with you. So I encourage you to check that out as well. And finally, don't forget to share this information with your friends, your family and colleagues and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time.